We come this Wednesday evening in our consideration of the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, what Baptists believe, to the study of the gospel. Now, whereas the Philadelphia Confession of Faith almost parallels in its systematic teaching of the doctrines of faith, the Westminster Confession, uh, the chapter on the subject of the gospel is missing from the Westminster, and so I feel that the Philadelphia Confession, the Baptist Confession, is superior uh, to that extent in that it sets forth the necessity of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the salvation of sinners. My text is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 16, where the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Section 1 of the chapter on the gospel in the Philadelphia Confession of Faith says, The covenant of works being broken by sin and made unprofitable unto life, God was pleased to give forth the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman, as the means of calling the elect and begetting in them faith and repentance. In this promise, the gospel, as to the substance of it, was revealed and is therein effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners. Now, what this statement is saying is simply that the gospel was given in the Old Testament dispensation as well as in the New, that it is not something exclusive to our own age, but as we're told by Paul in the book of Galatians, it was preached to Abraham. And here that this gospel was given in the Garden of Eden as the result of Adam transgressing God's law and breaking the covenant of works. Also, this shows the necessity of the gospel. If man had never sinned, there would have never been any gospel to preach. For if man had never sinned, there would have been no need for Christ to come into the world to be incarnated as the Son of God, to suffer, to die, to be buried, and to be raised again from the dead. In teaching the 10th graders their Bible study today at the school, we were discussing the subject of creation, the fall, and the flood. And I was pointing out to them that whereas antagonists to the gospel of Jesus Christ strike first of all at Genesis chapter 1 and try to destroy uh, the veracity of God in his word concerning creation, uh, their next major attack is upon Genesis chapter 3. For if you can destroy God as creator, then you have destroyed the God of the Bible, and you come up with a God who is some kind of an extension of the universe, or the universe some kind of an extension of him. But the attack on Genesis chapter 3, where we have the record of Adam's sin against God, is of extreme importance. 
For if you can insert evolution instead of creation into Genesis chapter 1 and mythology instead of historical fact into Genesis chapter 3, you have then no foundation for the gospel. As I pointed out to them, everything in the Bible that follows Genesis chapter 3 is the result of what happened in the Garden of Eden. In other words, it is because of man's fall into sin, in the historical person of Adam, in the Garden of Eden, uh, that there was the necessity of God revealing himself first to the whole world and then eventually to a man and then his family, then a nation, and then to bring a blessing of salvation to all nations through the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if there is no fall into sin, there is no salvation to be preached. And so all of the talk about Jesus Christ dying for sinners becomes nonsense. However, we know that the Bible record is true, that man is a sinner, and because of his transgression of God's law, it is necessary that Jesus Christ die in the stead of sinners and that the gospel concerning his death be preached. With this statement as an introduction, let us note first of all the name which is given, the gospel. Uh, this is actually the translation of a Greek word, ugelion, ugelion, uh, which means the proclamation of a good message, the declaration of good news. With reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the glad tidings from heaven by God. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, for example, introduced his ministry in his hometown of Nazareth in the synagogue as recorded in Luke chapter 4 uh, by stating that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy uh, wherein it was said that he was anointed of God to preach the glad tidings or the good news or the gospel to the poor. Now, in the Old Testament economy, the good news of the gospel was in the form of types, ceremonies, uh, symbolism, as well as promises that looked forward to the incarnation of the promised seed of woman. So, by the time we reach the ministry of Isaiah, uh, we discover in his prophecy, chapter 9, a setting forth of that gospel in anticipation of the incarnation of the Son of God. For Isaiah says in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now you will note the accuracy of the language as Isaiah speaks by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We read, Unto us a child is born, but it does not say a child is given, but a son is given. So first of all, Isaiah is saying, Unto us a son is given that the Lord Jesus Christ existed prior to the time of his birth. 
as the eternal Son of God. So we read in John's Gospel, chapter 3 and verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. However, in his incarnation, the eternal Son of God was a child born of the Virgin Mary. So 700 years preceding that great event, Isaiah was already preaching the gospel, proclaiming and declaring that Jesus Christ, God's Son, the Son of David, would be incarnate as the seed of woman in order to redeem us from our sins. In the New Testament, the good news or the gospel relates to the fact of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ as having already been accomplished during his earthly ministry and obedience to the law and by his death on the cross of Calvary and his resurrection from among the dead. So the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in defining the gospel uh, says that it pertains to how Christ died according to the Scriptures, how that he was buried, and on the third day that he was raised again according to the Scriptures, and that the verification of his resurrection was from the fact that over 500 persons saw him upon various occasions after his resurrection. Section 2 of the Philadelphia Confession of Faith Concerning the gospel says, the promise of Christ and salvation by him is revealed only by the word of God. Neither do the works of creation or providence with the light of nature make discovery of Christ or of grace by him so much as in general or obscure way, much less that men destitute of the revelation of him by the promise of the gospel should be enabled thereby to attain saving faith or repentance. So the gospel is known not by nature, not by the disposition of man, but the gospel is known only as God has revealed it in his word. So let us note uh, what the gospel is actually called in the New Testament. First of all, turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 1 where we see that the gospel is called the gospel of salvation. In verse 13 we read, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, the gospel of your salvation. The gospel concerning the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is called the gospel of salvation because it is the record of the life of our Lord, of his ministry, of his obedience, of his death as a sin offering, and of his resurrection, who himself is the author of salvation. But also it is the gospel of salvation, not only because it gives us an account 
of God's saving grace in Christ Jesus, but the gospel is the means chosen of God for revealing Christ and applying salvation to those that believe. In other words, God saves sinners through the foolishness of preaching, and no rational individual is saved apart from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in section 4 of the Confession of Faith, it is written, although the gospel be the only outward means of revealing Christ and saving grace, and is as such abundantly sufficient thereunto, yet that men who are born in trespasses may be born again, quickened or regenerated, there is moreover necessary and effectual, insuperable work of the Holy Spirit upon the whole soul for the introducing in them a new spiritual life without which no other means will effect their conversion. So whereas the gospel is the means used by the Holy Spirit in the conversion of sinners, nevertheless that gospel must be made effectual by the life-giving, regenerating work of God the Holy Spirit whereby the dead sinner is given a spiritual principle of life and so enabled to receive it. In the second place, if you will turn to the book of Acts, you will see that the gospel is called not only the gospel of salvation, but in Acts chapter 20 it is called the gospel of the grace of God. In verse 24 we read, where Paul is charging the elders of the church of Ephesus, but none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel of the grace of God. It is called the gospel of the grace of God because it contains the doctrines of grace. In other words, every single doctrine that is set forth in the gospel of Jesus Christ is a doctrine of grace. And it sets forth that salvation is by grace alone and without any works whatsoever on the part of the sinner. For by grace are you saved, Paul said, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So this gospel of grace speaks of salvation as the work of God, of God's unmerited favor, of God's unmerited favor to ill-deserving sinners from beginning to ending. Then in Ephesians chapter 6, we find further that this gospel is called not only the gospel of salvation and the gospel of grace, but it is the gospel of peace. In Ephesians 6 verse 15 we read, And your feet 
charred with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, when the gospel is spoken of as the gospel of peace, it relates to what took place in the covenant of grace before the foundation of the world, when God, having chosen a people unto himself, devised the means whereby they, being alienated from him on the account of sin, therefore at enmity with him and his enemies, to reconcile them and bring them to peace. That way is described for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 points out first of all in verse 19 to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. But how is it possible for God, who is just and holy, who must punish sin, reconcile his enemies to himself and let them go free from punishment. Paul answers that in verse 21. For there he says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Therefore, viewing man in his sinful condition, God set forth the Lord Jesus Christ to be a propitiation, a sin sacrifice wherein sin's guilt might be fully punished and then guilty sinners brought to terms of peace with God Almighty. The gospel is the declaration of those terms. It is the setting forth of how Christ was made sin how God the Father has punished sin in him so that now we have peace with him through our Lord Jesus. Then again, the gospel is called the gospel of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 4 as one example. Now, those who find a division of gospels in the New Testament will make a difference between the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of peace or the gospel of grace or the gospel of salvation. But we find that Matthew is relating to us exactly the same message that Mark was relating to us concerning the preaching of the Lord Jesus. And Mark gave to us in writing primarily to Gentiles the content of that gospel and Matthew terms it as the gospel of the kingdom, showing that they are one and the same gospel. So we read in verse 23, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Now, it is called the gospel of the kingdom because in this present dispensation it treats the gospel of grace uh, or the kingdom of grace as it is now manifested 
and also of the kingdom of glory which is to follow hereafter. For it is this gospel that declares the consummation of salvation and the fact that Christ will reign in glory. Also, it is called the gospel of the kingdom to emphasize the fact that it is the gospel of the sovereign God, the God who has the right to reveal that gospel to whom he will, to save whomever he pleases. So in section 3 of the Confession of Faith, the emphasis is placed upon this aspect of the gospel in its sovereignty. We read, The revelation of the gospel unto sinners, made in divers times and by sundry parts, with the addition of promises and precepts, for the obedience required therein as to the nations and persons to whom it is granted is merely of the sovereign will and good pleasure of God, not being annexed by virtue of any promise to the due improvement of men's natural abilities, by virtue of common light received without it, which none ever did make or can so do. And therefore in all ages the preaching of the gospel hath been granted unto persons and nations as to the extent or straightening of it in great variety according to the counsel of the will of God. Now what the confession of faith is saying there is this, that in determining where the gospel is to be preached, what nations are to receive the gospel, whereas other nations are left in their blindness and ignorance, God does not take into consideration uh, any virtue of any promise, because no such promise has been made, uh, nor the disposition of the persons to whom it is sent, because men are not able to improve themselves to the extent of obligating God to, br of, uh, to bringing the gospel to them by the usage of natural light. For every man by nature suppresses what knowledge he has of God and so any revelation of the gospel to any people must be an act of divine sovereignty. An illustration of this can be seen from the fact that the apostle Paul had determined in his missionary activities to go toward the east, that is, to leave Asia Minor and move eastward toward China, India, and the countries in that direction. We know the gospel had already been planted in the Near East. It had already been planted in Africa. But instead of being allowed to go to the East, God stopped him. He was given a vision of a man from Macedonia who said, Come over and help us. This turned Paul westward. And from that point on, his desire was to go to Rome and to Spain, uh, which means that the gospel moved in a westward direction into Europe for the salvation of pagans in that part of the world rather than in an eastwardly direction. Now if the gospel had gone in the other direction, missionaries would have been sent to us, for at the time the gospel was being declared, 
by these early missionaries, all of our forebears in Europe were pagans of the worst sort, who had no knowledge of Christianity nor the God of the Bible. Now, having looked at the names of the gospel and examined the contents of the confession of faith, let us note, first of all, the author and origin of the gospel. The gospel is not of man's origin. Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, it was not given to me by me. It was not revealed to me by me. But instead of coming from man, it is from God, and so called the gospel of God. The contents of the gospel itself is evidence enough that man is not the author of the gospel. For man left to himself, to his own wisdom, always seeks a gospel of self-salvation, a religion of morality and good works, whereby he can merit God's favor and rule out being a sinner. But the gospel of grace sets forth the fact that man is a sinner, that he cannot save himself, that salvation is of the Lord and of the Lord alone, and so God is its author. Then note the effects of the gospel when attended with the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that the same gospel preached to the same congregation from the lips of the same minister on the one hand is a savor of life unto life, but on the other hand is a savor of death unto death. In other words, to those who have life as the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gospel has a sweet smell to it. But to those who are not saved, it either has no smell at all or it smells of death, it smells of corruption. It doesn't have a pleasant odor, and so it leaves men in their death confirming that they are without the life of God. So as the confession stated in section 4, the gospel must be attended with the effectual power of God the Holy Spirit for the opening of the hearts of dead sinners to receive its message of salvation. So one of the effects of the gospel is regeneration. In the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, we read in verse 23, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Now we know that the Holy Spirit himself takes the first step in man's salvation and imparts spiritual life. But with this impartation of spiritual life, there is the calling forth of faith in Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the gospel. So the instrument which the Spirit of God uses as the seed to plant into the heart of the sinner to bring forth spiritual life is the Word of God. Now, just before the services this evening, a young man uh, with a new family uh, came by the church to talk to me on his way to work. 
Uh, his concern was that he has, uh, because of accumulated problems, stopped long enough to examine his heart and realized that he joined the church merely to have a sense of belonging, that he's not saved. I said to him, now you understand that I cannot save you. He said, I know that perfectly well. And I said, you understand that I cannot plant the gospel in your heart. He says, I understand that. I said, all I can do is witness the gospel to you. I can pray for you, but the Spirit will have to plant it there. But at least you have the signs of the working of the Spirit of God in that on this stormy night, uh, through several obstacles, you came to me and you have opened your heart and you want the Scriptures read and you want to be prayed for. Now, that's all I could do. You say, well, why didn't you bring him to a decision, preacher? Well, you know... No way you can preach the gospel apart from teaching the contents of the Word of God. So beginning with verse 1, the Apostle Paul says to this young preacher, this is your responsibility as a minister of the church. Let as many servants as are under the yoke, that is the yoke of Christ, count their own masters, worthy of all honor that the name of God and look his doctrine be not blasphemed now men who are working under other men are to consider themselves under the yoke of Christ and are to live in honor that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed and they that have believing masters let them not despise them because they're brethren. In other words, just simply because a master is a Christian, uh, don't hold him in ill repute or try to lower his position in life. Give him the respect and honor that's due him as uh, in a position above you or over you. But rather do them service because they're faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, does not choose wholesome words, biblical words, doctrinal words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, what kind of a preacher is he? He's proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, but from such withdraw thyself. In other words, Paul is saying, Timothy, when you find a man in the church who does not adhere to wholesome words and cling to the doctrine, in the teaching of the doctrine, you'll find that man to be proud. You'll find him to be the originator of strife because he will always be doting about questions. He'll always be raising issues that are not issues at all rather than dealing with the important essentials of the doctrines of Christ. He proves that he doesn't know anything, that he is destitute of the truth, and all he has in mind is gaining for himself 
things of this world in material goods or reputation because he has gotten fouled up along the way supposing that gain is godliness. Then we are admonished from such turn away. Don't have anything to do with them. Now if people would follow that admonition most of the churches today would be emptied because preachers are not preaching the gospel. They are not proclaiming the doctrines of the word of God to the feeding of the souls of God's people. Well, let me close by pointing out that when it comes to this gospel, Paul declares that there is only one. If any man preaches any other than that which we have preached, let him be accursed. There is only one gospel concerning one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, from one God, offering one glorious salvation. It is called a glorious gospel in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, because it excels the law and has in view not only our immediate salvation from sin but our ultimate glory in the consummation of our salvation at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have the instruction from the scriptures and the confession on the subject of the gospel.